Hi, I'm Gary. I'm an alcoholic. If I get to where you can't hear me, please holler at me. I'll, I'll stop. Uh, my dry day is the third day of December, 1965. I find myself in a place called the Wyoming State Hospital in Evanston, Wyoming, <clears throat> about a month before my 25th belly button birthday. That happened to be on the 3rd of December, 64, when I ended up there. <clears throat> and I, I spent some time there, uh, uh, 16 weeks, trying to find out what I was and what I was all about in that. And so I, I, I kind of got to back up a little bit from that. December 3rd, I'll be 50 years sober. And so, shortly after I got... <clears throat> got to understand, I just haven't drank and haven't died. Uh, uh, and shortly after I got out of that, that nut house, I was uh, in a meeting in Laramie, Wyoming. In a small town meeting, as some of you know here in the small towns and all that, every once in a while, a stranger comes through town and attends your meeting, and it's like fresh meat, because you don't have to sit and listen to each other for the whole time. All that. We had this salesman come through Laramie at that meeting, and he looked at me, and I, I, was, I hadn't been out of the hospital all that long. <clears throat> he looked at me, and he said, how old are you? And, I, and he looked at me, and he said, uh, you know, you got a shot at being 50 years sober. And, of course, at, at uh, 25 years old and all that, that uh, and thinking about it, uh, uh, two things to think about that. That was in 1965, and the oldest man in AA at that point in time. So that was a really big deal to this salesman. Now, it wasn't a big deal for me till oh, about three or four months ago. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so the idea of being 50 years sober sounds pretty good right now. Uh, I think the place to start is a little bit is to go back to, uh, I, I tried to grow up on an experimental farm outside of Cheyenne. I wasn't the experiment. Uh, uh, the, the, the idea of it was uh, just to see what you could possibly grow at 6,300 feet above sea level in a, a growing season that lasts less than 90 days. And what they're hoping is they could grow crops that you could make a living doing and all that. But all you could do is, is grow some short-term vegetables and strawberries and tomatoes. And uh, So they experimented with those to make them the hardiest and the biggest and most saleable they had, and that's there. But it was a 2,200-acre farm, excuse me, a 2,000-acre farm, but only about a third of that was under cultivation. So I had all this land to run on, the, the grassland, and, and, and so I was out there in the country. You know, I'd go to school, didn't particularly like school because I had all these other people there, all these other kids and that, and they were all different than me. And, uh, and it wasn't quite the same, but I loved it when I was out there in the country. I, my dog and I would take off walking, and, and, and uh, the only time we'd duck about anything is if a thunderstorm comes along. You're out in the prairie like that, and a thunderstorm comes along, you, you are, by golly, exposed. But, but that was kind of my life as, as a kid growing up. And on this experimental farm, there were a number of, of men, working men, that worked there. The, the, the guys working out of the oil patch and, and the people working on the farm. Some of them Ph.D. horticulturalists and others. And I sat and watched them and looked at them, and I admired most of them. And, you know, they went to work every day, and they took, and were raising their families. And if they went to town on Saturday night, they got home in time to go to church on Sunday. And uh, 
you know, kind of people you look up to. And I remember as a kid, I'd sit there and look at them, and I had this sense about me that I was never going to cut it. I wasn't going to make it. Like, I just had it. I don't know that anybody gave it to me. But that's just kind of what I was growing up with. So going to school was a little difficult as I'm getting to become a t-shirt, a teenager, and I'm watching the way the other kids are operating, they're talking to girls, and that looked like a really good idea to me, but I couldn't put the guts together to do it, and and, uh, and uh, that kind of continued on, and more stuff on, I ended up in high school, and uh, as a sophomore in high school, I was two other fellows and myself, and we're driving over to Laramie for the state of course, that's the first time you're unchaperoned and and, uh, and out for uh, you gonna go out there and do that. And so uh, we got over there, and uh, the guys I was with picked up a couple of girls. Uh, uh, I, my job was to go buy the booze, and so I went and got a, and we went and got some coke and uh, that's Coca-Cola. Uh, <laughs> gotta explain that stuff anymore. I just. <laughs> and uh, and we took off for the boondocks with the booze in the car and the girls in the car and we didn't have a clue what to do with either one of them. Uh, couldn't buy the magazines that explained it all back then like you can. <laughs> uh, we passed the bottle around and and I just took a took a slug. I, I I tipped it up and I got all I could get out of it before they took it away from me. And everything changed. I mean, everything changed. It's the most profound experience I'd ever had in my life. I had never felt that good in before. You know, I, I no longer felt like I didn't fit with that bunch in that car. I felt like I owned that bunch in that car. And, and, and I, made a, I made a grab for one of the girls. It was entirely unsuccessful, but I'm still proud of the grab. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And they, they got a little tired of me later on, so they took me to the truck stop to get sobered up and fill me full of coffee. All they did was wake me up, and I took a poke at a cowboy, and he slapped me around a whole lot worse than that girl did. And uh, later on, they found a place to put me during the night. And, uh, from that point on, I don't buzz anything else. But I got up the next morning, and I, would, I really didn't feel well. I had some sore spots on me, but uh, that, that kind of became the usual thing over but, um, uh, and I was sick, I was sick to my stomach and all that, but I couldn't wait to do it again. I, that was the most important thing for me to ever go do again, was go find a bottle just like that and maybe another girl to make a grab at or something else, but that didn't happen unless I was drinking. So, so anyway, that, that was kind of my start to it. And, I, and from that point on, Every time I took a drink, it was simply to catch what I caught that and have, and it was profound and it was very important to me. So, uh, uh, of course, I'm continuing on and trying to go in high school, and, and as a um, junior in high school, uh, there you got junior high school. You go from ninth to, in, in junior high to 10th grade in high school, and, uh, and you're always looking for the girls coming up into the 10th grade, you're always watching them coming in when you're an older class. And, uh, and so uh, one night came when we'd been a basketball game and a bunch of the kids had gone out and there was this uh, pretty little redheaded girl out there that I'd watched walk around school and all that. I didn't have nerve enough to go. But uh, 
uh, my daughter's sitting here. She doesn't know the story, but, but uh, I, uh, I apparently was watching this little redheaded girl, and, and a friend of mine, uh, one of the gang, we called ourselves the Dirty Ten. We didn't know what that meant. But um, I said, who is that girl? And he knew. This and so uh, she had come out there, gone to the game that night. The game, she's with another boy. But when I went up and my, introduced myself to her and, and uh, stuck my hand out, she, you know, that tells you how smart she was. I, uh, <laughs> but except for my many times out for bad behavior with that, and her name is Julie, and so, so I don't have to explain it. Uh, I graduated from high school barely with the D average, all I wanted was out, and uh, and went in the Army for six months in a court-martial, and uh, ended up back in Cheyenne. Uh, Julie was still in school. The day after I got back in Cheyenne, I called the school, pretended I was her dad, and told her we had an uh, emergency in the family, and I was going to pick her up at the moment. And she came out and saw it was me and went with me again. Uh, Things kind of took off. Uh, uh, the drinking got worse. I, I, even at that young and that sort of thing, I was. And bottom line is, is uh, we ended up getting married and and uh, had uh, three little girls. In the meantime, I'm drinking and loves. And when I had jobs, I couldn't. Get, and it kind of struggled along. And and uh, a day came when uh, I had been. Uh, uh, Time out for bad behavior, and I wasn't living there at the time. I'd moved in with the Ham's beer distributor. <laughs> Thought that was a hell of a move, but uh, he didn't think it was so slick after a day or so. And uh, uh, I've gone to, I, I had run my string at the bars in town. I, I either had bad checks at all of them or something like that, and I, they didn't want me around them, but I had, <clears throat> I had one bar I could go to at that point. Uh, I had a couple of drinks. And, uh, I uh, decided I was going to call Julie and see if I could get back. So I called and said I wanted to see the kids. Yeah, why don't you come on up? So I thought it had worked. You know, you know, I'm going to be back in there and be back in there. And uh, so I uh, uh, get up to the house and got out of the car and I look up and her dad's there. <laughs> we had that talk. <laughs> you guys know what that talk is, don't you? Yeah. And... Uh, and I don't recall the whole thing and all that, but the bottom line in that talk is, what are we going to do with Gary? And the only thing we knew to do was Julie's uh, had an uncle uh, who had been up to that house any number of times. Uh, and that's all they knew to do with us. Uh, as it happened, the AUA was in, but that hadn't come to mind yet. But uh, all they knew to do, and so they were pushing that I go up there. And so I told Julie's dad that uh, I'd go up there if he would take me. Hell, it's only 400 miles. It's not like it's out of the way. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, no, but I'll take you down to the, the bus station. I'll put you on. Uh, and uh, <laughs> a few years later, I'm sober, and, and we're, Julie and I and the girls are at, at her parents' house for Thanksgiving. I think it was when her dad says, Gary, do you remember when you went to the nut house? And I said, why? He said, I just wanted to tell you, I didn't care which bus you got on, just as I am. And, uh, <laughs> 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 but, uh, 
But the remarkable thing about that is I even got off the bus in Rock Springs and went and bought another pint to make it on in to Evanston and made it there. Got off the bus. I'm standing there. The only thing of any size that you can recognize when you get off the bus in Evanston is you look up on this mountain, this right side on the well there, and there's a granite structure that looks like the opening shot in a horror movie. A cop came up to me and said, are you going up there? <laughs> How do you know? Uh, I, I said, yeah, and he gave me a ride. That wasn't the first ride a cop gave me. I believe it was the last one. Better than anyway, in that place, uh, back then, the treatment program was a 16-week program. And uh, uh, that's because they needed somebody that could work. They needed them there. All they had to do was feed that. So they kept us there for 16 weeks, but they did an important thing. They brought AA in, and, and all the people that worked with the alcoholics were, were AA. And so my acquaintance to AA was being marched out of a locked ward, AA room, and sitting there looking out the window watching the cars drive up from people driving up from NED. And they'd drive up from uh, uh, Salt Lake City. And, and we'd stand there at those windows looking at the cars driving up. And I remember watching them. And I'm standing next to a guy named... I said, Jim, I don't think those are alcoholics coming in here. He says, why do you say that? I said, look at those cars. I said, they got chrome strips on both sides. <laughs> you know, one-piece windshield. Headlights work. They weren't at all like those old cars I'd done. And I didn't learn much in those days, because it was strangers and I was as uncomfortable there anywhere else. I thought they were a little weird because some of them came in talking about praying in the morning and praying when they went to bed at night. It does that, but I did. There was a Mormon family that lived there next door and they were good at praying. And uh, uh, in, fact, in fact, my dad wasn't particularly much. In Wyoming, you get droughts. We get some times where it's dry around here, but in Wyoming it gets to be a dry. Inside of the house, the outside of the house, your, your boots when you walk in it, it's just dust. And, uh, but we get those droughts, and, and, uh, and my dad would go over and ask the more. Sometimes it rained. Indian named Henry Standing Bear that says, you know what the most important thing there is to a rain dance? <laughs> Timing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I remember that. Anyway, uh, uh, my, quaint, my acquaintance with anything to do with all that. I mean, we had a meeting up on alcohol. There was a guy there named Doug who, for some reason, I thought was picking on me because he was talking about the 12 steps, you know, and they're up on the wall. And it's like, I made some kind of wise guy remark on the wall, why don't you just pick one and go with it, something real bright. Uh, Doug explained to me from the poet. This was the fifth nut house he'd been in with that. And the only people he knows that doesn't live in AA are those who go to meetings and do who want it. Because I promise you, you don't want my I don't want my life. And I'm praying that this time it'll work for him to that. But I always remembered that. And so 16 weeks when they come, uh, a day came when uh, the other alcoholics, I was the youngest person there by far, alcoholic ward. And uh, we're sitting down at this round table doing like new alcoholics do. We're sitting there effectively telling lies and uh, and uh, they're talking about what they were going to do when they got out one of them wanted to go back and uh, you know this stuff and they looked at me like it was my turn to talk and uh, I said you know I have no idea what I'm going to do when I get here all I know is I never wanted to 
And I heard myself say that because I hadn't had that thought before. I truly had not thought about not drinking. But, uh, so I had the first half of the first step right there. I was powerless over that stuff, but, you know. All that means is once I start, fourth chapter says, if when you honestly want to, you find you can't stop drinking entirely, or if when drinking you can't control the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. The more I look at that, he could have not used the, power, the word probably. I, uh, uh, we need a softer blow when we're told those things. So anyway, uh, uh, I had that and I knew it. I got out of there at uh, the end of the 16 weeks, and I got on a bus at four in the afternoon. And, uh, and Julie and the girls were staying in the house. And uh, uh, it was about probably a mile and a half walk. I was fully prepared to walk it. You can walk as far as you want to in Cheyenne, Wyoming at two in the morning. They're not a hell of a lot long. And, and, uh, and, and I looked up, and a, a police detective named Lloyd Gallion was standing there. And he came up to me, and he said, you going to the Baileys? And I said, yeah. So I said, okay, and I got in the car with him. And, uh, he said, you know, Gary, there's some people out there that just shouldn't drink. And I said, so you know where I've been, huh? And he said, Gary. And uh, 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 that was the last cop that gave me a ride. Right there. I don't know why he picked on me or that. So he must have known. He had to know I was coming. Cause, I mean. So anyway, that was the beginning of me trying to get involved in life. Real quickly, uh, the next morning, there was a knock on the door, and um, uh, Julie's dad answered the door, and he said, Gary, this is she up, and, and there was a guy came to me, came to the door and looked at me, and he said, uh, Gary, my name's Jim Newman, and uh, you're, not going, you're not doing anything tonight, are you? And I said, well, no. And uh, he said, good, we're going to Naomi. And so that was the first guy to get me on the street. We went by the, uh, the county jail on the way, a building I was familiar with, and uh, he said, I came here to pick up a guy uh, that's going there too, uh, and he says, uh, don't know if we can help him, he, he's, he's one of these dopers, uh, he's not an alcoholic, but uh, don't know what else to do with him, so I told somebody, and so in this old jail, you'd go in there, the desk and the offices were this side of the stairs, and you look up the stairs, there's a holding pen, the bar's at the top, and I look up at the guy standing in there waiting to be taken out, and uh, and he was not my favorite guy. I, I had memories of him, and, and uh, in my mind, he's as big a loser as you can get, and he's sitting up there thinking, I'm, and, uh, uh, but he did, and we did, and we, and uh, uh, that was kind of the start of the strange time. Now, back then, I had no idea about the traditions. I knew I didn't relate to his way of operating, because I'd yet to smoke my first joint. Now, her mom wants to smoke a joint for she dies. That's on her bucket list. And, and uh, I told her, I said, you got any number of grandsons that can hook you up, I'm sure. And uh, one of them said, Grandpa, quit saying that. I'm not getting any dope for Grandma. So, so. <laughs> so anyway, uh, got a free ride to college. So after I, I got out, Julie and I and the girls moved and I did four years of college in three, and then we ended up in Denver working for an oil company. That was really where I got acquainted with AA. I, in Laramie, I attended those, I tried to attend the meetings. There were two, two meetings a week there, or somebody else showed up, and very often I went down and made the coffee and had to drink the whole pot myself. And nobody would show up. That's kind of tough if you're as scared as I was, because I'd go down there and do that, and, and uh, 
I'd take my books down to study in case nobody showed up, but I'd be sitting there drinking coffee, looking out the window, and across the street was the Buffalo Bar. Had one of those neon signs that said Buffalo. Buffalo. But the B was out. Damn thing said Buffalo. Buffalo. <laughs> and, uh, and I had my arms, uh, my hand on the arm of the chair, and my knuckles turning white, saying, I don't want to go over there. I can't stand this crap. I was learning the lesson the worst thing you can do is take out. That's when we're the most miserable. That, that can't hardly stand it. Something else has got to happen, or we're going to drink. So anyway, uh, move on, end up in Denver, and start attending AA there. And a series of circumstances, I, had, I went to this strange meeting called the Denver Young People's Group. And I walked in there. Now keep in mind, by that time, I've been, I've been, and that, and I'm looking around the room, and there's all these guys in there, and I figured I had, could tell them how the cow ate the they didn't want me in there. I couldn't look. But they didn't listen to my stuff with that. And they kept talking about this book called Alcoholics Anonymous. And the people they knew were the one that took the book and did what it said. And, and I hadn't met anybody like that in Laramie that they talked about. I remember old Frank in Laramie. He'd been in and out of AA for a bunch of times. And he said this one time at a meeting, he said, well, I think the answer is the third step. He says, I've been in and out of this outfit for years, but I took the third step this time, and I've been longer, sober longer than I've ever been in my life. Following Saturday, he came down drunk. I thought, I'm not messing with that third step. <laughs> and, uh, but I didn't get it. And so we got around them, and they didn't listen to me much, but they did it. And a series of circumstances, uh, we had a message carried to us. And they had a, uh, they called golden slippers for good reason. These guys were going. And one of them disappeared, and, and Mac, and when he came back after a while back, he was sober, and they didn't know what to do, and he had this idea. He says, i, I got to do take this group, and we're going to take our big book, and I think if we each sit down, we're going to read the big book as carefully as we can. We're going to be very careful, and any time to do something, we're going to do it, or if it asks us a question, we're going to answer it. And that's what we're going to do. If a newcomer comes to our meeting, a couple of us will take the newcomer in the other room, but the group will stay together so we can keep our focus on going through. And he brought that idea down to us, and so we thought we... And so we had, a, we had a bunch of us think it was a good idea. And we started out a fairly large co-ed group. <coughs> and then we got started in it, and after a while, the girls left. And I've talked to them. I, uh, I don't know why they left. They're not sure either. But they, uh, and I, I didn't do it. I didn't. But we went through the book that carefully when we did that. And I had a number of things and I had book for it. I understood I was powerless over alcohol. Gosh, you can't drink, you can't not with that. But the part about the unmanageable life, I didn't get till I had been dry for a while. I'm dry for a while and I'm still waking up scared. You know, I can't look you in the eye to talk to you. I have no way. Now it's no big deal. I got a manager. Capital M. Works in. But so we did that. A line in the, uh, uh, I learned how to look at the big book as a textbook, because that's really what it is. If you do that, you'll find it out. First 43 pages are first step. Uh, that must be important, because that's over a third of the 12-step portion in the book. That's really important to get it. And the thing that helped me a lot, and I'm really not sure why, is in the third chapter where it says we learned we had to fully concede to our animal cells that we're alcoholics. It's the first step to recovery. The delusion where anything like other people are presently maybe has to but I went home from that meeting that night, and there was something different. And I said that same prayer again. And uh, we started looking in the fourth chapter with the same. <laughs> and a friend of mine named Tom, 
had come to the group. And we're looking at this, and he talked about the time that uh, he had been sent to a psychiatric center in Denver called Mount Airy. <laughs> Isn't that for the airheads? Uh, great name for a nut house. And, uh, and they had the old aversion treatment. Are you familiar with what that was, Don? That was when they, uh, it was a hospital setting, and they put Tom in it, and the treatment room was just a room, maybe 12, 14 foot square. Middle of the room is a barber chair, and there's a stainless steel pot that's swiveled in front of, or, or away from, and they'd given him some antibodies. And on the walls, are, the walls are mirrored with shelves on them and all kinds of different liquor. And they gave Tom the antibodies, and told him he could have anything he wanted. Now the idea of this is they drink on the juice, they get very, very sick, and they get to watch themselves do it in the mirror. Watch themselves throw up, their hair fall out, their eyebrows curl, you know, it's really a good time. And, uh, and do that, and the idea of it is you're just going to be so adverse to it, you'll take, never take another drink. And Tom uh, came to us and all that, and he says, well, he says, it worked, it really did. I haven't had reason or excuse to take antibus since. And <laughs> came to believe that a power grand myself could restore me to standing, because I watched him doing it with other people in AA. I didn't come in as much of a believer, and, and, but I watched people coming in and get over an AA. Some of them were growing right past me. They were taking care of their families again, and they were doing things, and they were blaming it on God, that it must be good. I just came to believe by doing with that. And, of course, I'm working in places where, where the, the, the evangelical Christians are beating me on and, and doing this and telling me everything. But we went on, and we went through the steps. I wrote my first inventory with the young people. There was a man in young people who was a big, good-looking Hispanic guy. And we just really didn't like each other. Now, in my part of the country, a Hispanic guy and an Anglo guy not liking each other is every it's a little difference. You'd walk into the meeting. Back then, the sign of the times was the peace sign. Ernie's missing this finger. And, and uh, that's not the only reason I didn't like him. But, but he disappeared for a while. And uh, uh, people would say, Ernie's gone. Where's Ernie and all that? I said, don't knock it. He's gone. And uh, he came back. And he walked in the room, and there was something different about him. He walked in the room, and you could sign And he told the story that a week or two before that, he'd got beef with his wife, and he, he ran away, and he ran down to Lake Whitney, Texas, and hung out. And Bob showed him how to write an inventory. Get that. He showed him how to write an inventory. He didn't give him a big book and a kick in the fanny and tell him. And uh, put him down in one of the fishing cabins down there. Told Bob he was done, and, and uh, Ernie likes to fish, so... Bob said, let's get in the big boat and go out in the middle of the last fish. So he gets on the big boat, and they get out there, and Bob takes, turns the boat off, puts the keys in his pocket, and asks Ernie. And so Ernie took a fifth step. He can't swim. Uh, and that thing. But so when he came back to town, it was different. It was visible. But that night, I went home, and I wrote my inventory. And I wrote all night. And I quit writing after it was about sunup because I was done. There wasn't anything. And I ended up taking my fifth step with Ernie. And and we've been lifelong friends, and he's an awful old-looking Hispanic fan. I'd walk, into, I'd walk into the York Street Club with me, and the girls sitting there and say, Oh, gee, when Ernie comes in, it just takes my breath away. I think the son of a bitch. <laughs> so anyway, uh, I got the fifth step done, and, and the young people's group was 
a lot of fellowship. We were always doing something together. We were driving 60, 70 miles to Fort Morgan just to take a meeting in there like those old alcoholics needed this bunch of punks coming in there telling them. And, uh, we were doing stuff like that. Close, we did it. We'd go on 12-step calls together. And uh, uh, we got to be a part of, of uh, they took Denver. They actually came to our group asking if we would support them. And so we took a group conscious and we said, well, hell yes, that's the only way any of us can afford to go. So the things were putting along, and I got through the fifth. Uh, we said a prayer one night because uh, my business situation wasn't working well. I got a call from Nashville, Tennessee, from a guy and sell music for a... Uh, and so uh, we'd been praying about what to do about this job situation. Uh, this, this call came in the next morning. That night I went to the young people's meeting. I said, well, do you really think... Uh, that, that, that's God's will for us to go out there and this young lady who, who would come to our meeting once while she drives hands and says, sure beats hell out of a bowl of lightning here. And uh, so that's what happened. Uh, and that's a short form and all that. We pulled the girls out of their schools and, and we moved to Indiana and uh, it was traumatic for all of us, but it was really... And that, and uh, uh, in Indianapolis at that time had about 50 now. Those 50 back then were speaker meetings. Now, out of the 500 meetings we have in India, they got it backwards all by shooting your mouth off instead of listening. That's just an opinion. <laughs> Other than that, it doesn't bother me a damn bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was tough for us to move there and all that. They didn't do AA right there at all. So it was a big, I, but I was a new guy in town, and, and I wasn't get off my mouth. So I, I spoke at all 50 meetings, and they hadn't heard anything about, about, about sitting down with the big book that. So... It was a novelty for him, I think. And it took me three more years for somebody would take me up on it and get put together a group together. To go. Meantime, my behavior is turning south. I'm not doing well. I'm married a long time and a lot of infidelity and I make a living. What's happening, if, if you're an alcoholic like I am and would really like to be a spiritual person, and I tell a lie in one part of my life, it doesn't just affect that part. But, you know, I'm telling, I'm, I'm lying about my behavior, if you will, money, power, and sex, money, society. What, there's not much else to, with that. And all those things were falling apart, and I, I had been causing a lot of harm, and that's why. I'm, and uh, uh, I called a guy in Chicago, named him, and uh, he was a long-time guy, and I'd known him, and, uh, a step-Nazi, and uh, I'd, I'd, somehow I just, God had told me that this is all. So when I called him, I asked him if, if there's any possibility that old sober, your sober 40-some-year-old grandfather could be going through male menopause. And he said, well, maybe. But if you review your first three steps, write another inventory, take some fifth steps and make some amends, you'll feel And I said, I'll do anything you have to say, Paul. And so uh, that was my instructions. And so that. And now every time, I had always been taking people through the step I had. And every time they were writing inventory, I was with them. I, I show them how. I don't just, and I did that. So I'd written lots of inventories, but I sat down this time and, and I wrote another inventory, and the resentment list was all current stuff. But you might want to think about that. What that's telling you is I can cause as much harm stone sober as I can drinking. And, and, and of course, the fear inventory was, was current. But I went all the way back as far as I could remember about my conduct inventory. And I listed everybody I could think of. And there's nine questions to answer in your book. And I did that and all that. And I went all the way through it. 
And I took the fifth step. I called him, told him I was done. And he gave me a time and date to be up there for a fifth step. And uh, and they told me at a motel to be in. And he said there'll be a guy to come by. So I got there in time to get a cup of coffee from the gas station across the street. And there's a knock on the door. And the guy, stone stranger name, he says, my name's Dennis O'Brien. I'm 29 years sober. I'm here to swap fifth step. He's carrying a three-ring binder. And he sits down in the only chair in the room. That still irritates me a little. And uh, and uh, starts reading inventory to me. He says, I'll go first so you'll know what to do. And he reads inventory with me. And so then it's my turn. Now, what we've done is we've both written lots of inventory. We know how to write inventory and avoid all the stuff with the drama. You don't have to do the drama down to cases and selfishness, self-centeredness, dishonesty, and fear pretty quick. How does it affect my self-esteem? You don't have to go into all the drama. And so... Uh, uh, we did that, and we compared notes afterwards. Just picked up some stuff I had missed, and you know, had time to go get a cup of coffee when, I, when he left. And uh, get back to the room. There's another knock on the door, and this guy's Don. He said we're 21 years, and, and he's here to swap 50, swap fifth steps with me, and he's going to go. By noon Sunday, I'd done that with nine different people, and I was invited to uh, breakfast at a, a, a pancake house out in Lagos. And uh, I went out there, and my sponsor, Paul, was there with a couple, three other guys. And we sat down, and I'm, of course, I'm thinking it's over. Uh, and that was a mistake, because one of them said, Gary, get your pad and pencil out, we'll help you with your amends list. And they had remarkable memories. And so we went down that, and then Paul asked another question. He says, do you know any amends that didn't show up on your resentment? How about those in all that? Well, there were several. There were people that didn't show up on my resentment list, but they hadn't bothered me that we owed money to and everything. And they couldn't understand how I'd stayed sober that long. They, they, they just, how do you do that? They believe, and I believe, that most people who have some substantial sobriety, now substantial could be three years, those that are, and they go back out, go out with unmade amends. And I, I really think that's true. Now, I don't know that that's the reason they go out, but the fact that they go out with a, uh, and uh, so uh, they, didn't, they didn't understand how I'd done it. And it just had to be God, because anything else. That and a lot of 12-star. Wilson says, working with others works for nothing else. So anyway, I was given instructions to get that done from that weekend and sat down with Jenda. A lot of those financial things, she thought she was sitting right with me the time we took them to dial finance. Or, and we did all that, and we knew they had to be taken care of. And so she was with me on it. So the first thing we did uh, uh, when we sat down and decided that on a Tuesday night, uh, I called and start, uh, started with her parents. And her dad answered the phone. And, and I wanted to tell him as briefly as I could, that the, the reason for the call was because I needed to find some way to add some character to my life with that. But first, I wanted him to know that I had harmed him in a way that he would never. But I said, I know I worried you sick by the way I treated Julie and the way I treated I know that bothered you no end and all that, but you never once were cross with me. He really did. He wouldn't talk to me sometimes, but he And I thanked him for it, and I made a mistake. I said, I love you. And he said, oh, shit, and he gave the phone to Grandma. And uh, so effectively, I went through the same routine with her, and I said, have you any idea how much money you've given us over the years? And she said, right down to the last. So we started the process of paying that back with him. And there was a lot of those men. 
I would come home at night from work and I'd sit down and I had a big long columnar pad that I'd, I'd take the paycheck as far as it'd go, paying current bills and paying off amends and enough money for what it took to get the kids to school and gas enough to get us to work. And I did that week after week after week. And one day I went downstairs and after I'd been doing that, and I'm really frustrated. And I said, Julia, there's no way in God's green earth I'm capable of making enough money that and all that. I was really hoping for a little sympathy. That worked real And uh, uh, next morning, Julie said she had an idea. Now, that's a little scary. Uh, uh, but she says, we've lived in this house now longer than we've ever lived. We've been in it long enough. It's appreciated in value. You've actually had the same job. You've got that. We could sell the house. We could cash in your retirement. We could make all the amends and pay off what current debt we have and we should have enough left. I later started calling it a mobile home and I thought, my God, she... And so I ran out of the house to go to work and I said, let's call Paul. So I call him and I uh, had this crazy thought. That, uh, we could sell a house, cash in all my retirement, uh, uh, make all those amends and pay current debt. Live in a trailer house, how local does that sound? And he said, Gary, that's the sanest thing I've heard you say in 20 years. I said, no, it was Julius, and he said he thought so. <laughs> so we did. It took, it took some more drama. and forth. We sold it on, uh, on Julius. Uh, and uh, and uh, uh, we started calling people to get them in the house. And, uh, but uh, we started calling them and all that. And, uh, I called a guy that uh, I had worked for while I was going to school in Laramie, at the time salesman in his clothing store. And he, because I was the oldest student he had working in there, he'd leave me in charge when he was absent. And I paid him for it by stealing all the clothes I put and left Laramie the best dressed guy. But I had to call him first. And I told him why I was calling him. Well, I thought something was going to happen to those clothes. I thought, and I said, why didn't you say something? He said that. But, he was one of them, and we sent him. In fact, he forgave me once. I started that early on when I was just trying to make payments and couldn't keep them up. And he forgave me the rest. And when I called him back, he forgot he forgave me, and, uh, which is really a good thing. That might have saved my life, because had Paul Martin known that I would call somebody to forgive me the money I owed him, it would have been really troublesome. He, he called, uh, uh, we got all the parents taken care of. Two other things I'll tell you. One of them is a guy named Bob, who some of you know is one of the finest speakers we have out there. And he and I had become friends. We had met at the, uh, uh, in Houston in 77 at the, uh, uh, one of the early Icky Paw. And we'd become friends there. And they stayed friends during that time. One day when I'm all this trouble, he stopped in Indianapolis to see Julie and I before uh, he went on somewhere else. And he looked in my eye, and I was in trouble, and you could see it. And I says, uh, they're fixing to foreclose on the house in the morning, and Julie doesn't know us. Uh, I just got a little relief from telling him. And so we're driving on out the house, and he says, where's the bank? I said, what bank? He says, why? He says, let's go over there. We'll talk with them. I said, Bob, they really don't want it. They're real tired of talk. He said, you never know. Let's go in. And so we parked across the street. We're jaywalking across the street in that bank, and I feel like I'm going in to see the principal with my dad. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, we go in there, 
and he sits up right by the desk and I sit and this angry looking banker comes out got with him wrinkled. and all Bob said to him is what's it take to get Gary caught up and the banker dug it up and gave her. and Bob was carrying it in cash and so we're walking out of there and I'm and we're going back across that street he said that's your problem I long many times told him he wasn't that smart to tell him how much of a problem that was but so anyway I called Bob and uh, and uh, I got his address to send the money to him, and he laughed. And I said, what's so funny? He says, well, Gary, he says, back then, the business I had was generating cash so fast, my wife and I were looking for ways to spend it. We were tithing it. We were, we were putting in business. We were doing all these things. But one of the things we did is I was on the circuit, and Linda was with me, and we thought really needed help, and we were helping them out. So what you don't know is that I went in the other room and made a phone call. This was before cell phones. I know some of you don't remember that. But I went and made a call to Linda, and she's scaring Julie, let's do it. And uh, I gave her the money. He says, now since then, the laws have changed, and I can't do these limited partnerships with large pieces of real estate. To, to and, uh, uh, and he said, they changed the law, and I got that. He says, I don't talk about it for the program. I every day, just to make about twice a week, I go down to our mailbox, and every week or two, there would be a check. He says, so you see, cow baby, you're just part of it. And uh, so this is, keep that in mind. And this is a really big deal. The biggest deal is at our home groups. And if you're doing that, I promise you, I don't care how much pain you're in. Today, uh, uh, my life uh, has changed. Julie's got Parkinson's, so she is, and, and I'm needed around home more. Uh, and we made a deal when we got married back in nine, and I haven't been real good about keeping that deal until these last few. And when uh, Marlene called and, and wanted Julie and I to come down and heard her talk, I'll, I'll vouch for her. Uh, uh, with that, so she's not getting around to doing that, and so I'm ha helping more around the house, enjoying the cooking a little bit. It's really hard to cook for two people, and, but we're doing that. Uh, our girls are grown. We have uh, five. Uh, grandchildren that are all grown the younger that and the oldest is 34 and the bad and then uh, that particular one uh, first girl was 18 and the baby was about two weeks old when the cops delivered them to her they've been there since and that well they're 18 months and two weeks and now they're 13 11 <laughs> I only missed about one and uh, and that and so well, we've had a second batch of grandchildren but those teenage girls on 50 plus year old parents is, is wearing them out our daughter's tired then our youngest I mean our, the, our original grandchildren our has two babies so Julie gets to watch the great grandbabies again and all of that she loves it when they come over and I'm not so sure that's uh, uh, if it's nice enough I can go out in the patio and smoke a cigar they can come over anytime but <laughs> <laughs> but they're great and we love them and we wouldn't do anything else. Life today is to me is still being involved in AA as much as I can. I'm not doing this kind of stuff much anymore now and, and I promised Julie I wouldn't so I've been backing off the circuit and I'm not doing that. Anytime I've had to do that in the past I just quit getting calls and so AA really has the ability to find great places to have and this is by golly one and, and, and kiddo thanks so much I'm really really grateful and, and I know, know a bunch of you we've met before here and there and around. 
saw some old friends for many years. 